of Jesus Christ, the second of which is in our text this morning, but we're also going to see next week, the death, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, and the third of which, of course, is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We're starting in verse 28 this morning, 14 through 42, and in John 13 to about John 19, there's a lot of chapters there. But really, it's only the span of about 24 hours that takes place. And so we go from a Thursday evening all the way to a Friday evening of Jesus on the cross. But really, there's 24 hours that takes place there. And we're going to look at some fulfilled prophecy this morning that has taken place in those last 24 hours that really we've been looking at over the past weeks and months. We're going to begin by John 19, starting in verse 28 says this, after this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said, to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put it on a sponge, on a hyssop branch, and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished, and he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Since it was the day of preparation, and since the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day. The Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken, so they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other, who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus, they saw he was already dead, and they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it bore witness that this man's testimony is true. And he knows that he is telling the truth that you also may believe. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look upon whom they have pierced. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also had earlier come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus, bound it in linen clothes with spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had been yet laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. Would you pray with me as we... Dig into God's holy word this morning. God, we thank you for your goodness in our life. We thank you we can come here worshiping you. We thank you for faith, for love in our life, for grace, for family. God, as we come to Thanksgiving, uh, just so many things that we are to be thankful for. Help us to be thankful for your word. As we see this morning, may you open our eyes and our minds to the fulfilled prophecy God, the, the incredible beauty of your word, God, that it is accurate and authentic and perfect and reliable and trustworthy. God, I pray that you may have your way this morning. Holy Spirit, may you come and do only the work that you can do. May you grow our faith in your word this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As I mentioned, from John 13 to John 19 was about 24 hours um, but it's estimated that back in the Old Testament, there's about 300 to 400 Old Testament prophecies looking to Jesus Christ. And in the span of these 24 hours, many Bible prophecies 
were fulfilled. Now, I don't know about you, but for me, I didn't grow up reading the Old Testament. I didn't grow up studying the Old Testament every day like the the Jewish person back in this day would have been doing. They would have grown up reading and studying the scriptures. And so to them, these fulfilled prophecies would have been an, an incredibly big deal. But to us, because we're so disconnected, I think many of us, we didn't grow up. We might hear a story here or there of the Old Testament or Noah or David and Goliath. But for the most part, we didn't grow up reading about the prophecies that Jesus was going to fulfill. And so it's easily overlooked about all of these prophecies. You might be thinking, well, how is it important for for us to understand how Jesus fulfilled prophecy? Like, how is that going to affect us today? As I was preparing the sermon this week, I was thinking that same question. Why does this matter? How are these prophecies going to be practical in your life, in my life? And as I read and studied and read through the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we see over and over and over again that the writers of those Gospels that God used, they went through great lengths to show Old Testament prophecy being fulfilled. They went through great lengths to do that for a number of reasons. But most importantly, to summarize, God saw it fit and thought it important enough for us to see prophecy fulfilled that he included it all throughout the New Testament and especially there in the Gospels. And so we don't want to overlook these Bible prophecies because God has given to them to us as a gift. So this morning, I want to briefly just look at 27, that's right, briefly look at 27 (laughs) Bible prophecies because there are over 300. So we're just taking a small little snippet this morning that were fulfilled in those 24 hours. Now, before we get into looking at these 27 Bible prophecies, I want us to first understand why we can trust these Bible prophecies. When there's a prophecy and a fulfillment, there's really two parts to every single one of these. You have an Old Testament prophecy, right? And then you have a New Testament fulfillment. But what is the point of moving forward and seeing fulfilled prophecy from the Old Testament and the New Testament if we're not sure if the sources that we're getting these from are reliable sources? I don't want to just run through how Jesus fulfilled these prophecies and have some people thinking, well, how can we really make sure and trust where that came from? I mean, it's not hard to fulfill a prophecy if you wrote it at the same time it was being fulfilled in. Or how do we really know? So before we begin building up, showing how these prophecies were fulfilled, I want us to first take a look, first at the Old Testament, and look at the foundation of where the prophecies came from. And so that's where we're going to start, is looking at the trustworthiness of the Word of God, the foundation of the Old Testament. God's given us a lot of resources and preserved throughout history some incredible resources for us. And so we're going to look at three major Old Testament manuscripts that God has given us that we have preserved, which where we get our Old Testament from. So these are going to be in your outline this morning. For those of you meticulous note takers, I helped you out this morning. It's in an outline, so you can just focus here and know that it's on your sheet. The first of which is the Masoretic text. The Masoretic text. This is a Hebrew text. The Old Testament was originally written in Hebrew. And so this is a Hebrew text earliest works dating back to 500 AD. So what's important about this text that we have is that there is a complete copy of the entire Old Testament. 
the entire Hebrew Old Testament, and it dates back to about 1000 AD. All right? So a long time ago, but still, it still has a lot longer to go back because it's copies. We don't have the original manuscript copies because we wouldn't know, but we have copies of those. So this kind of set a benchmark in history of what those copies would be and how we can compare them. We have this Masoretic text. So we can keep going back. Septuagint. This is the next one here that God has given us. This is a Greek translation of the Old Testament. The oldest Septuagint manuscript we have is dated 350 A.D. Remember, we're trying to get back before the time of Jesus Christ, which was around 0 to 30, 33 A.D. We're trying to get before that, so we're not there yet, but the oldest Septuagint manuscript, 350 A.D., this is the first major effect at translating biblical text from one language to another. And so it was originally in Hebrew, but then it was translated in Greek, a common language during this time. It was translated by Jewish scholars who knew the original Old Testament Hebrew. So they would know when they're translating it into Greek what it should be like, what the meaning of the text would be. And what's very important about this text is we see in the New Testament that the apostles and the disciples used the Greek Septuagint to quote many of their Old Testament scriptures. Now, why is that important? Well, because there was Hebrew, which was what it was originally written in, but they used the Greek Septuagint copy in many of their quotes, showing that even under a different Bible translation, that the original content and intent of the Bible holds true, that God's word can be preserved in whether it's Hebrew or Greek or English, or Spanish, or whatever the case, and we have it preserved in history, where the Holy Spirit used the apostles and the disciples, and they used a Greek manuscript. So this is very important for Bible translation discovery. Then back in 1946, one of the greatest discoveries of the 20th century took place. Does anyone know what it is? That's right, the Dead Sea Scrolls. So how were these scrolls discovered. Well, wouldn't you know it? It's a Bible story, it seems. As the story goes, there was a shepherd, and he was out in search for one of his lost from the flock. And he's out searching for this lost one from his flock when he comes upon a series of caves. Unfortunately for the story, he was seeking after a goat. It would have, I wish it would have been a sheep, because it would have made the story a lot more biblically based, right? <laughs> But he's searching after a goat, and he stumbles upon a cave. And he does what any one of us would do when you come upon a dark, mysterious cave. What did he do? You don't go in. <laughs> Who said go in, right? So he picked up a rock. This is what we should do, right? We pick up a rock, and he threw it into the cave to see what would happen. See if there's any bad guys in there, if there's any creatures in there. I mean, he picked it up, threw the rock into the the sound that historians around the world cringe at, at the end of his rock throw, he heard shattering pots. And so he went in the cave and found the Dead Sea Scrolls, pots that had been 2,000 years old. No one had ever seen in 2,000 years. They were hidden away in there. We have some pictures of those pots, but the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered. So this is Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek text all in the Old Testament. They were all in here. 
So quite incredible because it included manuscripts or fragments of every book in the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, except the book of Esther. All of them created nearly 1,000 years earlier than what we had as our earliest Old Testament manuscript. So the Masoretic text, remember a thousand years back? Well, these dated a thousand years earlier than those. So this is very important because now we have two points on a linear scale. You can't judge anything with one point, right? But when you get two points, now you can measure something in between. So what, what can we measure with an Old Testament manuscript dated 1000 AD and another Old Testament manuscript dated 2000, 2000 years ago? We can, we can measure the accuracy of what has taken place in that thousand-year time span of translation, of copying the Bible. So this is where it gets interesting. I got your attention? Great. So when you compare the Masoretic text with the Hebrew text, we have an Old Testament timeline here. So here's the Masoretic text. goes back. Here's the Dead Sea Scrolls. Here's the birth of Christ. So now we're before the birth of Christ, which is important because we're going to look at Old Testament prophecies relating to Christ. And it's important for us to see how we can know for sure these were before the time of Christ. And now we have dated historical manuscripts that go back before the time of Christ. And now we're going to see here's a potential problem, that there's corruption that could take place in the Word of God between this 900 to 1,000 years old. But when you compare the Masoretic text and the Dead Sea Scrolls, they are word for word identical in our Hebrew Bible in more than 95% of the text. Word for word identical. You might be thinking, well, what about that 5%, right? Well, the 5% of variation consists mainly of obvious slips of the pen. Their language is very much more minute, small, and you have to be more accurate than our language. And so a tiny little jot, right, or tittle can change the whole meaning of a word. So if there's obvious slips or pins or slight variations in spelling, that's the 5%, and they don't change the meaning or the understanding of what was written. And then that 5%, it's already down to just a few, a few letters and words of what does this actually mean. When you compare it and you have 10 copies of one chapter, and there's one potential mistake in there, and you have 10 copies of the same book, you can compare those 10 copies, and if 9 of the 10 have the same thing, and one of them has a little mark that's out of place, you can be pretty confident you know what that is. But in almost every case, it doesn't change the meaning of that word. And so God has preserved, through numerous languages, numerous texts, his word. Such an incredible, incredible way. So we see the foundation here where the prophecies have been laid, where they're stemming from. They've stayed the same all the way back before the time of Christ. So that, that was the hard part. Now we're going to come to the New Testament. I want us to look at the foundation for the prophecies of the fulfillment we have of the New Testament. So regarding the New Testament, we have 6,000 early manuscripts of just the Greek Testament in existence today. So when you combine the Greek, the Latin, and other translations, all early manuscripts, we have 24,000 copies of the New Testament. And when you pull in early church fathers and writings, we have almost double that. 
almost double that, close to 50,000 copies or portions of the New Testament. And these are all within 20 to 30 years of the original autograph dates. So we have a little chart here that I want to show. So I know that it's a little bit hard to see, but... So these are the number of manuscript copies we have, kind of in orange. So the New Testament, there's 5,700 here. When you add in the other languages of Greek, and then you have Aramaic, and all of those other ones, it's going out to, what was that, 24,000, so somewhere over here. Um, but when you compare this to other historical works historians look at, we have Homer. There's 643 manuscript copies. Herodotus, there's eight. Plato, seven. Tacticus, there's 20 copies. Caesar, 10. And Pliny, seven. All of these wrote historical documents and works. And so they have seven copies of Pliny. They have seven copies of Plato. Now, the gray is the time gap in years from when we have the, the oldest copy and when it was originally written. So we have seven copies of Plato... And from when it was originally written to the oldest manuscript we have, there's a 1,200-year time span. So 1,200 years have passed from when it was originally written to the latest copy we have. And we have seven copies of that. And they take it as historic, literal fact. Because they have seven copies, and for the most part, they're in alignment, even though 1,200 years have passed. Then you come to the New Testament, and we have 6,000 copies 24,000 when you add in all the different variations, and there's a time span for the majority of them of 25 years. Do, do you see on both accounts how God has given us tremendous provision to show the authenticity of both the Old Testament and the New Testament? Quite, quite incredible. So as we're looking at the foundation before we begin to build up, I hope you see that God has preserved his word in incredible ways, in stone, all over the place. And so it's trustworthy and true. I want us to begin looking at these prophecies now that we've kind of covered the foundation of the manuscripts that we're looking in. And these prophecies are going to be in your outline. So there's those 27 outline or 27 prophecies. So I want to work through a couple of these. Uh, number one, the betrayal of the Lord Jesus Christ by Judas Iscariot. Psalms 41.9 says, Even my close friend in whom I have trusted, who ate my bread, he's lifted his heel against me. We see this fulfillment in Mark and some of the other Gospels. It says Judas Iscariot was one of the twelve who betrayed him. Then we see the Lord Jesus Christ, he's forsaken by his disciples. Exactly what we see in the Gospels take place. Even the price, of the, the price that was going to be paid for Jesus to be betrayed was in the Old Testament. It wasn't just that he was going to be betrayed, but how much it was going to be paid on his behalf for him to be betrayed. It says, Then I said to them in Zechariah 11, If it seems good to you, give me my wages, but if not, keep them. And they weighed out as my wages 30 pieces of silver. In the Gospels, we see them pay Judas 30 pieces of silver. So there was a betrayal, it was prophesied about, and it happened. The amount of money that would be given, it was prophesied about in the Old Testament, and it was given. What would be done with the betrayal money? See how specific these get? It was written in the Old Testament that they would buy a field with that money, 
with those 30 pieces of silver and then the fulfillment. We see it in the Gospels that they went and bought a field, the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. Five, the prophecy concerning the Lord's scourging. Six, the reproach and dishonor of the Lord. Seven, the false witnesses against the Lord Jesus Christ. Eight, the parting of the Lord's garments. Psalm twenty-two, eighteen. it says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. John nineteen twenty-four, as we read this morning, says, So they said to one another, or last week, Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scriptures, which says, They divided my garment among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. So we've seen just eight prophecies that have been recorded in manuscripts we have before the time of Jesus Christ, and then also New Testament manuscripts of those fulfillment, just eight. Now, very smart professors and scientists have calculated the odds of any man fulfilling just eight prophecies like this, and it would look something like this. The odds of a man fulfilling eight prophecies is one in, does anyone know that number? 100 quadrillion. I had to go make sure I had that right here. It's quadrillion. This is one quadrillion, a hundred quadrillion. That's just eight, fulfilling eight prophecies like that Jesus did. Actually, he fulfilled over 300. I don't know what that number would be. I didn't go to look it up, but I figured you would be satisfied with 100 quadrillion, just with one through eight. But if you're not impressed by that, maybe you should go play the lottery, right? So, It's quite incredible what God has done uh, through these prophecies. We'll continue on here. Uh, Going through number nine. It says, The Lord would not open his mouth. He was silent before Pontius Pilate. Speaking of Pontius Pilate, it was often for many, many, many years, people would scoff and ridicule biblical scholars and Christians because there wasn't evidence of some of the things that we find in the Bible. Pontius Pilate was one of those topics Pontius Pilate. You would think Pontius Pilate would be in history if he crucified the most important man to live, yet we can't find him in any history. We can't find any record of him, and they ridiculed Christians for years and years. That was until 1961, where they discovered what is now called the Pilate Stone. I have a picture of this stone that they discovered, and I love how God actually put it in stone for the skeptics. And so it's actually written in stone. We have the stone. uh, And so on this stone it's written. We also have another uh, picture there for you. It says this. For the Caesareans, because he was in Caesarea of Philippi, just like the Bible says, by the way. So for the Caesareans, which Pontius Pilate, the prefect of Judea, gave and dedicated. Date AD 26-37. So you have... A dated stone, which they've dated, and this was kind of one of those um, dedication stones that goes on the front of a temple. And it was dedicated to them by Pontius Pilate in the exact area where the Bible says he was governor. To the exact people where the Bible says he was governor over. In the exact same Roman position where the Bible says he was a Roman official. And so... They say, well, that's just a religious work. We can't really trust the historicity of the Bible. But that's not true. It is a historical book. And yes, 
those miracles that happen in there, they're historic as well. Continuing on, the Savior's crucifixion says he was pierced for our transgressions. We see that fulfillment. The Lord's falling beneath the cross. The Lord's thirst. Giving him something to drink, we feel, see fulfilled in John 19. First stated in Psalm 69. It says they pierced his hands and his feet on, on number 15. It says when they had crucified him, they divided his lots by casting lots. The mockery of the people onto 20, his intercession, uh, intercessions for the transgressors. Number 22, victory and triumph. Listen to what it says. I love this one. Psalms 22:31. His righteous acts will be told to those not yet born. They will hear about everything he has done. Do you know that this morning we are continuing to fulfill prophecy from the Old Testament? Because we're talking about Jesus Christ's righteous acts. And we, all of us, were not born yet, but we are fulfilling prophecy continuously from Psalms 22:31 as we proclaim the death, birth, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Incredible. Not one of his bones would be broken. The place of his burial. These are just a handful of prophecies. I encourage you to go look up these scriptures, but just a handful of prophecies that Christ fulfilled in these 24 hours. I want us to go back and look at John 19, verse 28. John 19, verse 28, the first verse this morning that we started with. says this, after this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scriptures, I thirst. What does this verse alone teach us about Jesus Christ? It's incredible to think others throughout this entire 24-hour span from Thursday evening to Friday evening unconsciously played their part perfectly to fulfill all scripture. They had no idea what they were doing, and why they were doing it. Think of it. Think of the characters and the cast and the setting involved, yet it was fulfilling prophecy after prophecy after prophecy. Pilate. We saw a couple of weeks ago how he was fighting for the love of himself, yet fulfilling Scripture. Even his own sinful desires worked out to fulfill Scripture. The Jewish leaders, the disciples, Judas, the crowd, the conversations, the guard who pierced him. I mean, think, the guard who debated over who got Jesus' clothes. The guard who decided out of a love for himself and not wanting to rip it that maybe he could win it in a bet, fulfilling scripture. The guard who came up with the idea to cast lots. I mean, just think of all the little minute details. I mean, who brought dice that day? I don't know if it was every day they brought dice because there was sometimes an extra garment or something they needed to cast dice for, but who brought dice that day to have with them? Was that something out of the ordinary or something normal? The jar of wine sitting by, who filled that up? Was there always wine sitting by to give to those on the cross? I mean, just after another and after another. Another one that I I just love is, it says a new tomb would be prepared for him prophecy. And it says there was a new tomb. How long did it take to prepare a tomb to be carved into a rock face out of stone? Months? Years? I don't know. 
but to carve it out. And the Greek word here that we see in the Gospels is not just cut. It's actually this word hewn. And in Greek, this means literally to polish. And so you can cut out granite, but to get granite like it's on your countertop, you have to polish it. So this type of tomb was not just hurriedly cut. It was actually polished. Very expensive, highly developed. And so we see that the tomb wasn't just ready for Jesus. The tomb had actually been polished for his arrival. There's not like one detail that God missed out. They're all perfectly laid out. So how long did it take for all these things to be orchestrated? Was it days, weeks, months, years, decades? Well, biblically, we know the answer. It goes all the way back to Genesis. Genesis chapter 3, the first first couple of verses that talk about Jesus Christ. Genesis 3.15, speak of Jesus Christ defeating Satan on the cross. I will put enmity between you and the serpent and the woman, and between your offspring and hers, speaking of Jesus Christ, he will crush your head and you will strike his heel, speaking of the crucifixion. It's incredible to think while throughout all of history, everyone was playing their perfect part. I mean, who the guard was going to be and who their parents were. I mean, what conversations took place for everything to line up perfectly. And what we see is everyone is blind to the fact of what they're doing, but Jesus Christ is consistently and consciously aware of what needed to be fulfilled. We see him say in verse 28, After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill Scripture. So everyone else is just randomly going about fulfilling prophecy while Jesus is meticulously thinking and following through perfectly obedience to the Father and following through the prophecy. Incredible to think. I want us to see that sometimes people portray Jesus as someone who, because of his actions, his life, and his words, he ended up on the cross. That's not how it happened. It wasn't the result of Jesus' life actions and words was to end up on the cross. No, it was Jesus' whole purpose in coming, why he said what he did, why he did what he did, his actions, all of it was to end up on the cross. The cross wasn't a result. The cross always was the purpose from the very beginning. It wasn't a mistake. He didn't just end up there. He ended up there on purpose, and every action he did was perfectly obedient to the Father purpose to die for you and for my sins on the cross. What we sang of this morning, I'll fly away. The Passover lamb. Not one bone broken, going back to the Old Testament, Passover lamb. The wrath you and I deserve for our sins he took upon himself. Perfectly obedient, knowing what was at the end of his road, but pursuing it anyways. I want to share with us one more reason why it's so important for us to understand fulfilled prophecy and why it matters for us today. Maybe you've gone into a bank or opened a bank account or done really any type of financial transaction. You might have seen the following posted by the SEC. It says, a fund's past performance does not necessarily predict what? Future results. Church, I can tell you that when We're speaking of God. God's past performance does predict future results. Every time. 
And so we see from the scriptures, God has perfectly fulfilled every single one of his promises. And he will continue to do so. That's one reason why we need to look at fulfilled prophecy. Because he has promises for you for today. He has promises for your hope in your marriage. Promises to give you hope in your time of need. Promises about our eternal security. Promises to uplift our soul. We don't trust in these promises alone. We trust in the words given because of the word giver who gave us the words. If someone gives you a promise who you distrust, do you just take that promise and believe it? No, you take into account who is telling you something. And the same is true with us and God. Because God has so perfectly kept his word, he continues to keep his word. It says we look to him, not just because of the promise given, but because of the promise giver at the end of that promise. That's why we can trust in these promises. So as you've seen this morning, the words of God's word that he has given us are not only supported by archaeological evidence. They're not only supported by historical evidence or numerous copies. More important than any of that, the words we have been given from Scripture are right and true because they come from someone who is perfectly right and perfectly true. I want us to end with a time of thankfulness, as we've talked about this morning. Thankfulness of God for fulfilling his word. Thankfulness to God that he is always faithful. Thankfulness to God that we have a copy of God's word, that he has kept it in pristine condition, that we can read this and know and trust it is the word of God from beginning to end. I want us to have a time of prayer just between you and the Lord, of thankfulness of what he's given you in your life. Let's take a moment and do that. God, we're so thankful for what you've done, what you've preserved for us. You've kept every promise and you will continue to do so because you keep your promises because you are faithful. God, we thank you this morning. We're able to look at prophecy that you fulfilled and that we have assurance when it was written because you've given us that evidence and how it was fulfilled. God, we give you praise this morning, and we just want to say thank you. We love you for what you've done in our life, for our family, friends, salvation, church, that we're able to worship you, that we have copies of your word. God, we just want to give you praise. I want us to transition to a time of repentance. We're having a time, we've had a time of thankfulness, but maybe, maybe there needs to be a time of repentance where in your own life you know And I know that we don't look upon God's word as we should. We don't read it as often as we should. We don't value it as much as we should. Maybe there's things in your family or you as a husband or as a wife or as a student. There's there's areas you know you're struggling with. Maybe there needs to be a time of repentance of us just sharing with God things we know needs to change in our life. Let's take a moment and do that between you and the Lord.
God, we thank you, as Luke mentioned earlier, for loving us in spite of us, um, that we're able to know you. God, we have failed you in so many ways at different times, sometimes accidentally and other times on purpose, knowing what we were doing. God, we thank you for loving us anyways. Um, We thank you for giving your life, for pursuing death on the cross for us. God, help us in the areas where we struggle. Help us to commit our life to you. God, we're broken over our sin and we want to become more Christ-like. Help us in that endeavor and in our sanctification. I want to end with a time of commitment. We go through thankfulness and repentance and what it means to repent is to turn away from biblically. So it doesn't mean just we feel bad about something or that I know I need to read God's word more or I need to lead my family better or I need to be more loving and bring love into the home, or I don't need to work as much, or there's distractions in my life I know I need to minimize, I need to prioritize things, I need to respect others. Just a list of many, many things we could struggle with. There's a a repentance, but then there's a turning away from those things and a commitment to something, to someone, Jesus Christ. So I want us to have a time of commitment, what we're turning away from, but what we're turning to, and between you and the Lord, spending some time and committing to whatever that may be. God, I want to pray for the husbands, the fathers, the men who are here. God, help us to be the type of men you want us to be. Help us to turn away from evil things, the desires of this world, the distractions, and help us to lead in our church, in our community, in our workplace, in our families, as men who are dedicated to your word, who are humble because we know we, what we are without you. God, I pray for these men. May you help us to turn and commit to reading your word, to leading our families in righteousness, to being the spiritual leader in our home, to being the spiritual leader in our workplace. God, I pray for the men, husbands and fathers here. God, I also pray for the women, the mothers, the daughters who are here, the sisters. God, may you use them in ministry. May you use them in ways of encouragement, in the home, in the raising of children, in the workplace. God, may they be instruments of you that that show mercy and grace and love. Continue to sanctify them. Help us to commit as a people to your word, to prayer. God, I pray for those who are students, sons and daughters and children. God, may you infuse in them this morning the authenticity of your word, that your word is faithful, it is true, it is historic. 
It is life-changing. It is life-giving. God, may you get a hold of their heart and help them to, to know who you are at a young age. May you grow them up in, in ways that are going to glorify you. May even now they begin to point their friends and, and those they're around to you. Help them to, to be loving and honoring to their parents in ways that glorify you. God, we want to be a church that honors you in all that we do. We thank you that you have fulfilled prophecy perfectly and not left one thing undone. And God, that gives us a hope for our future because there are future fulfillments that still are to come. We look to when you come back and take us from this place, that we have our faith and our trust in you for all eternity, and we thank you for that. We give you praise this morning. And as we go this week, may it be glorifying to you. May you sear on our hearts and our minds the mission of Jesus Christ, the mission we have of the gospel of taking that life-changing gospel. As maybe we're around friends and family that we haven't seen this upcoming week. God, I know for me and for maybe many of those here that we might be around unbelievers that hate your word that hate what you stand for or what we stand for. I pray that you give us patience and grace to love these people as you've loved them. Help us to be a witness uh, as we are going to be in settings maybe this week that, that, um, that are out of the normal for us. Help us to be glorifying to you. It's in, it's in Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen.